All right, so we're in podcast 40A. 40A, yeah, we're getting into the numerics now. Alphanumeric podcast. The reason it's 40A, we did a bit of a disclaimer in front of 40 about tailing person. Um, the MPD and the dual capability two tension rope system under PET BC SAR, you know, has that in its literature. There was some information that came out from CMC about it. And this caused a little bit of feedback and a little bit of comments online and some comments around our organization. So Podcast 40 now gets an A in order to do a really quick discussion in regards to rope tailing. Before we get into that, though, we've got a couple guys here with us, Damien and Kevin. They've both been busy in the last month, and I'm just going to prompt a couple questions and what they've been doing. We'll start with Damien. Team led for the first time, Grimp Japan. How was that? <laughs> Grimp Japan was interesting. Uh it was my seventh Grimm that I've attended in some kind of capacity. And uh, this time I kind of got thrown into the hot seat to lead a, a team of some high-speed guys, which made it uh, even more interesting because you got to find the, the line on how much to lead and how much to sit back. So, uh, but it, it was a lot of fun. It was really, really well organized. Uh, the guys were a lot of fun to be around. I certainly learned a lot. Um, I actually probably learned a lot more of that Grimm than I have in the previous six editions. So... Um, Finally. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Hey? Yeah, <laughs> Give an example. Good. Example of something you learned. Let's... Uh, something to learn is kind of how to control a team, how to disseminate information, um, how, how to decide um, what to micromanage and what not to micromanage, and how to kind of step back and see a big picture. Um, you know, my previous roles were typically as one of the rescuers, and uh, with that, you're assigned a task and you normally have to get uh, um, to execute that task however you see fit. But now you're at the point where you have to not only mind what you're doing, but kind of keep an eye on everybody else um, and hope that they kind of know what you have in your head, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. So you got to put um, a shock collar on Mark so they can stay <laughs> <his mouth. laughs> Yeah, there's one guy in particular that we had to keep quiet. But no, it, it, it was a really, really good experience. And um it was a lot of fun. Right on. So you've now tied with the other guy at the table, Kevin, for fourth place teams at a Grimp Day because you did fourth in China, did you not? Yeah. So, uh, well, Damien was an integral part of that <laughs> team in China. Um, and, yeah, so Damien and I worked together on some of the Grimp teams and stuff. Um, team leading, it, actually, I haven't rigged on a Grimp team. I've only been either the team leader or controller. Um, out of the, the five grimps that I've been involved with. Um, and I found, like, right from the very first one we went to, being a team lead was very challenging, um, definitely stressful, but the kind of stress that I I happen to like and enjoy and the challenge I, I enjoy. Um, and then I, the team actually, I guess, seemed to think I did an okay job because they kept asking me to be the team lead again. <laughs> um, so it's awesome to see uh, that you know Norm and Jason and Damien have um, kind of stepped into that role, um, and Don Robinson as well, uh, and Jason Budd did team lead one year. So a number of other people have, have been team lead and tried it, and um, it is definitely a different way to experience the competition. Um and it's a different way to challenge yourself. And what Damien said there is, you've got this picture in your head, and I always remember that one scenario where I said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. The time crunch is on. The stopwatch is ticking. And in this particular scenario, there was you, in so many minutes, the patient had to be on the ground. 
And I said, okay. And two people looked at me and said, yes. And two people said, no. And I went, <laughs> 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 so, Oops. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it, that's pretty good stuff. Um, you just came back from Sprat as well. You presented down there some of the testing that we're doing, a bit of a uh, foreshadowing. We've got some more testing going on. Damien and one of our other fellows will be down in Salt Lake pretty quick. We'll get that up on the YouTube channel, some of the testing that we're doing there. And as far as Grimps go, stay tuned because we've got a few more Grimp things like a North America coming up that maybe in 2021. We've got some knowledge about that. But you were down in Sprat presenting some documentation there. Anything out of Sprat, like one thing that kind of sticks out that is coming down the pipe? Um, lots of stuff. You talked with Jack a bit about the conference. Yeah, I, I, well, I actually presented both uh, Craig McClure's presentation on the ASAP Highline testing and then, you know, the presentation that I did at Eiders. So I presented both of those to the, the fellows at Sprat. Uh, it was well-received. It was a really good experience. Um, there's lots of little stuff, administrative stuff in Sprat. You know, a few things are happening. Um, it was a lot of reports from committees, and it was a good time. Obviously, you know, I, I knew a lot of people there and met a lot more people that are, you know, really heavily into this anti-gravity industry that we find ourselves in, um, which was pretty cool. And I think the biggest thing that I see coming out of Sprat is the level of professionalism they're aiming towards right now, which is is very professional. Um, and whereas they're on the, the new certification requirements, the evaluation criteria, it's all referencing back to, you know, what does the manufacturer intend for the device? So this kind of old school fly by the seat of your pants is the way we've always used this device is out the window and we need to back this up with, with something, the manufacturer's instructions being the primary document. And it's kind of interesting because we're seeing this happening in so many different realms. Um, you know, I watch it in the paramedic realm. We're, we're, we're living it in the fire department realm. And in the, the rescue realm is slowly catching up. Um, and, you know, we're, we're now a part of that, you know, producing some numbers, doing some testing, which is pretty exciting. Um, and now, and, and Sprat is, is definitely on the same track. So that, I think, is... If you want to know where Sprat is, is going, well, number one, they're expanding um, uh, a lot of international stuff going on, but their their dedication to the, the professionalism of the industry is um, is pretty huge. Okay, so the topic at hand, rope tailing, and I'm just going to kind of talk a little bit about 40. Jack had brought it up that we weren't doing rope tailing a lot when we were teaching it previously, and it's because... It wasn't really recommended by any manufacturers, and I might have misspoke a little bit. CMC as a manufacturer doesn't recommend it. The rescue school for CMC is the ones that have come out with this. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And also, I just want to make it clear, when we're going out and doing things like Grimp Day, when you see a picture of me or Jason usually on the rigging end running a TTRS system without tailing like shark finning or double clutching, what you don't see is... 90% of our scenarios are only a single person load. We do a lot of climbing rescuers. Even if it is then a two person load, we can see it. We're running sloping high lines or skate blocks or something where we can see the load. So we both have that feel, that tactile feel, plus the visual on the load. And some of the other things you don't hear or see is times when, for instance, I did call for a tailor because of rope issues that I was having with some milkage of the sheath. And when you get into a situation like that, 
all of a sudden now I can't control the load 100%, so I back the bus up and that's what I do. And this is a hard ground to kind of go down. But Damien and Kevin had a bit of a conversation about it the other day, argument, fight, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and um, they both started referencing stuff. So uh, we've got referencing going. Let's get it done. So who wants to start? We're turning it over to Kevin. We've also got this on video, this one. Usually these aren't so informal, but uh, we're in the middle of teaching Sprat courses and a bunch of stuff. So this is the lunch break right now. Yeah, so I think... It's a really, it's an interesting topic who the time has come. Um, and this is a topic that I think the rescue community has been dancing around for a few years. And this goes back to at least 2015. Uh, Mike Gibbs did a presentation um, about mirrored systems. I just want to get the title correct. So in 2015, Mike Gibbs presented Mirror Systems, Reflections from the Edge. And in that set of testing, which they did a lot of testing with MPD operators, some experienced, some newly trained, and they noticed that when they were training twin tension and they uh, chopped one of the ropes, um, they had some what they considered to be excessively long stopping distances on the the remaining rope with the, the other MPD. And they narrowed it down to, it's not the device, it's, it's always about the people. Right. Or you're failing the device to yeah, use it. Exactly. So they narrowed it down to human reaction time and the human being able to do what was um, what was asked of him in the event of a failure, which sometimes is counterintuitive. Something is going wrong, and instead of asking the operator to hang on tighter, we're asking the operator to let go. And I just want to look for... Um, give me a bit in, but in the MPD operational recommendations... Um, there, there's a bunch of them. There's six of them. And anybody's interested in this, go to the Eider's website, uh, look up Mike Gibbs's paper, Mirrored Systems, um, Lessons from the Edge 2015. Um, we need to train a, a number of things. We need to train letting go of the handle while, remain, while continuing to hang on to the rope, ideally. Um, use the friction post when possible. Use a less of grab, so the, the teacup um, operating method for the MPD that everybody talks about, and add more hands to the running end of the rope. So he doesn't actually use the word tailing here, but that's what he's talking about, right? And then I can't remember if it was the same year or not, but Russ McCuller, uh, out of, I believe it's Mississippi uh, Fire Academy, did a bunch of testing where he compared IDs, Munter Hitches. He's a big fan of the Munter Hitch. He's... Uh, <laughs> Presented some interesting testing on Munter Hitches, and it's quite surprising how well the Munter Hitch does. Um, but he came up with a, a similar recommendation in that MPD and ID require more training than users have come to expect, and this problem can be mitigated with added friction, rope tailing, and training repetition. And so here's a question. This has been around for a while. I mean, it's called technical rescue. Hate mail that I'm going to get aside. The fire department tries to dumb it down. And I mean, it's my, my profession and yours for 25 years. They try to dumb it down. It's a tertiary task. They want multiple people to do it. But it is technical rescue. The technical word means something. And I guess that's where I come back and go, I'll use the devices, and if I feel that I can't control it, I start adding that automatically. I put in a friction beater. I get Jay to tail the rope if it's going to start, you know, if i got milking problems with the sheath. 
running those things through my head, but I don't start there. I mean, is that kind of what you're saying, or what do you think about that? Like, what's the takeaway? Um, well, what I, what, I, what actually, which what I'm saying at the moment is that this is an issue that's been around for a while that most organizations, in my opinion, haven't adequately addressed in that, you know, I've certainly, when I train, when I, when I work with, teach departments, uh, my own department here at Ronan, I'm, because of this testing, I'm much more uh, almost militant about how we operate the MPD, how we set it up, how, how we rig it, how we operate it. There's a bunch of considerations there to, to sort of aim for success. Um, EMBC with the, the British Columbia Provincial Search and Rescue Rope Rescue Program, they adopted rope tailing a couple of years ago. Uh, they're the only large organization that I know of. Uh, I've heard of some other individual smaller organizations that have adopted it um, as well. And I almost think that what we need to think about or what I'd like to posit is that you know, here in, in Ronan, we've talked for a few years now about how the basket stretcher is the gold standard of patient packaging. Patient in a harness, in a basket stretcher, internally harnessed, externally lashed with two points of contact to the system. Horizontal. The horizontal. Slightly head up, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then every time, every step we move away from that, we need to justify, okay, we, need to, we have a difficult edge transition, we go vertical. It's in a confined space, we have a narrow hatch, we can't use the basket, we go to the SCAD. But these are all steps away from what we consider the, the highest level, which is, should be our you know, theoretical initial starting point. And I, th- I think a lot of this discussion has caused me to go back and look at this research and some of the other stuff that's come up. And maybe we need to think about our, when we're running twin tension systems, because when we lower, we defeat the device, we hold it open, and we have a human factor at play. We need to start with extra friction and rope tailors and consider that the gold standard and then work our way down um, if there's other factors at play. Okay. Damien. Yeah, so to kind of hit on a lot of Kevin's points, I mean, part of the reason this came up between Kevin and I a couple of days ago was, um, you know, I couldn't agree more that it's the gold standard. You're the two dudes that listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, so for me, how this kind of got introduced to me was uh, I did a course with Kirk back in 2016, right before he finished his summary, um, the uh, EMBC report. And uh, he kind of introduced rope tailing to me. It was a relatively new concept for me at the time with the two-tension rope lower. And, uh, you know, he was quick to point out that it is the gold standard. However, there are times where it's not practical it's not feasible, or you just simply don't have the manpower to accomplish it. Now, where I kind of started to run into problems is uh, the fire department I work with um, took that report and just pulled one line out of it and has made rope tailing mandatory across all types of systems. So whether it be single person or a rescue load or a 90 degree edge or a slope, it's uh, it, that's not relative. They've kind of mandated that through both devices, you must have friction carabiners and then rope tailing. What I've seen is that kind of creates a few different issues with with depending on the scenario. Um, you know, for example, if you've got one guy going over a slope on two half inch lines going through MPDs with friction carabiners and then a rope tailor, uh, it becomes a bit of an issue. Now. I understand that rope tailing isn't directly 
associated to why we have so much friction. That's that's um, potentially problems with our, our setup. But what I do see is that if you are rope tailing what I would consider properly and adequately, you don't have much room between the rope tailor and the incoming hand um, that the operator needs to be able to control that device. So if you can picture an MPD, he doesn't have the luxury to swing that kind of free rope around as much as he'd wish he could. Um, because of that, either option A is you tend to get a lot of slack between the rope tailor and the operator, or option B is the operator just starts to push rope into the device to kind of fight it. And so you start to see that you've included a rope tailor to enhance the safety, but now you start cheating the device a little bit and you kind of lose a point on safety. Um, so I start to question, okay, well, at what point is it practical to have a rope tailor? Um, and what point does it start to kind of set you back a little bit? And so that was kind of the discussion I wanted to open up with Kevin um, because I, I, I couldn't agree more. It is the gold standard. However, to me, there are times when it's justified that uh, it can actually start to hamper um, your efficiency a little bit while doing a rescue. Kev, do you want to answer that? <laughs> um, so I think that what we're talking about here, we need, we need to really clearly identify the what the issue is. And the issue is when we lower with the device, no matter the device, and in fact, the testing has shown no matter the device, um, when we're lowering, we are defeating the, you know, we have hands on the device, we're operating a handle, we're opening something up, we're releasing something. On the MPD, it's even called the release handle. We're holding it open for, you know, sometimes an extended period of time. And if we hold that handle um, in the same position and release all control on the tail of the rope, the load is essentially free to run. There is some friction of the rope running around the bollard or the cam or the one-way shiv or whatever the internal component of the device is. Um, there's some friction there, not realistically a lot, and the device is free to run. And when we operate these devices properly, um, you know, we have brake hand, we, 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 that gives us our friction. Generally speaking, all the manufacturer instructions on most of the devices say you put the handle into the operating position to lower. That is basically an on-off switch, and you are controlling the speed with your brake hand. And the issue is if that speed gets too fast and we lose control with that brake hand, that's a human operator interface, that the reaction time to let go of the handle, which is what needs to happen in order for the ice to lock, allows a, a certain amount of rope to pass through. There, therefore, we get longer stopping distances than we expected to see when we started adding in things like the MPD and the ID and the clutch. And this isn't an MPD problem. Um, that's what some of the, you, you know, the MPD has no panic stop. So when you open that release handle fully, um, there's nothing left. But the rig or the Druid Pro is the same thing. And interestingly enough, Russ McCullers testing, uh, he tested IDs alongside the MPDs, and he actually found these stopping distances on the IDs to be slightly longer than that of the MPD. And the ID has a panic stop. And uh, my initial thinking was the you know that operating window on the ID is so small, the you know sudden additional load when we chop one of the two ropes. Um, 
would mean it would be hard for the operator to hold it in the operating position. And Russ McCullough found through testing and the evidence that we have, which isn't a lot, but it's some, um, says that no, the anti-panic function just, it does, it's not all that helpful to us here. So we have a human interface problem. It is a, it is a hazard uh, for when we are releasing these devices. And anything else in, in sort of the, the life safety world, we need to do what we can to mitigate that hazard. We apologize for the uh, the noise in the background here. Like I said, we're on a lunch break right now, and I'd love to turn that alarm off, but I'd have to leave to get it done. And um, I guess it brings up a couple questions, like listening to this go through. So you, I, you know, I wrote here, clutch versus MPD. Is it an MPD problem? Is it the way people are putting their hand into that release handle and wedging their fingers in there? Is that causing the issue? Is a clutch going to be less of an issue, or is it just... Is it going to be an issue with any device, you think? Any device will have a human operator um, response time issue. The, the MPD, I mean, the way the handle is designed, Kirk designed it that way to be counterintuitive so that it would be difficult to hang on to, so it would be easy to let go of. And certainly, I think, you know, some of the, the mitts and the paws and the, the bear hugs I've seen people giving that handle, that is perhaps part of it. And that's why... You know, we train the, the teacup. Once you've opened the lever, it only takes a couple of fingers to hold it in that open position. Um, but again, it's 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 not an issue that is particular to one device. Uh, each device will have its own characteristics around this issue of how, um, but it's not particular to just one device. And we haven't I haven't seen testing yet on the clutch in this regard, or, or haven't tried it in this. So, quick question, Kevin, with the clutch. Where's the recommendation from? Is it from the manufacturer or where is it? So the manufacturer's instructions for the clutch do not mention rope tailing. And quite fat, oh, frankly, they don't even mention twin tension. The manufacturer's instructions for the clutch tell you how to inspect, uh, load, and, and operate you know, the clutch. You, know, you, 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 put a, you connect it to the anchor. You put a rope in it. Uh, you ensure you have the correct rope path. You have a brake hand on the, the in-feed end of the rope and uh, one hand on the operating handle. You open the operating handle and rope passes through, much like any other device. The manufacturer's instructions don't say how you incorporate that device into a system. And so the CMC Rescue School just put out this new video, which is it's a fantastic video, really well done, really clear. Um, I quite like it. And they showed four different ways to rig a clutch. Way number one was um, two operator, um, two clutches, two ropes, two operators. Uh, so two individual anchors to two operators. Scenario two was reducing the risk profile by adding an additional tailor to the lowering system. So that's what we were just talking about, just simple rope tailing. The third and fourth scenarios were what CMC is calling uh, double clutch. And I don't know yet if they're trying to you know, trademark that. <laughs> um, little <laughs> saying, uh, but double clutch TTRS. Um, clutches rig so they can be controlled by a single operator. And there's a couple of reasons to use a single operator. And one of the biggest ones is Richard Delaney and some of the testing he's done on dual main systems finds that a single operator running two devices uh, is much better at maintaining relatively equal tension in both lines than two different operators and two different devices. So that's one of the primary reasons to use a single operator is you get really good sharing of tension. Um, so anyway, back to the CMC video, 
They say a backup device and shock absorber designed for two-person load connected uh, to the clutch becket and installed on the tension side of the clutch. So they used ASAPs with access absorbers. And this is really interesting. So number one, it's an expensive setup. Two clutches, two ASAPs, two access absorbers, and I imagine some fancy G11 rope in the mix. Um, it works really well. I mean, it's going to do what it intended to do, but when we look at uh, Kirk's 2016 uh, summary report, he tested that configuration, and he found that the ASAP works, but with a, uh, a rescue load on it, and I'd have to look up the, the summary report. Actually, I've got it right here. Um, <laughs> of course you do. Exactly. You know, I'm that guy. So uh, I'd have to, like, parse through here to see what the load was. Um, he's mentioning one-person load and two-person loads. Somewhere in here he, he has... The, somewhere in the report it says what the actual load was in kilograms. He tested the ASAP in front of a device with the release handle locked wide open. And what they found was that the ASAP in front of the DCD, the shock was deployed to, in excess of one meter, which is within the parameters of the shock absorber, outside the parameters of the Blake-Homsey drop test. Um, and the force is slightly exceeded six kilonewtons. Now, that maximum arrest force is very close to the number that Petzl says. Petzl says 7 kilonewtons is the point at which tooth devices, which is what the ASAP is, start to damage um, their ropes, Petzl's ropes. They said they've tested some other ropes, and sometimes that number is a little lower. So the ASAP does what it does. It does what it does very well. But our margin for error when we put the ASAP in front of the descent control device um, according to Kirk's testing in 2016, is pretty small. Now, I will say that Russ McCullough's testing, I'd have to you know dig into it, he also tested the ASAP, and he was pretty happy using the ASAP to, to catch these loads in, in a similar configuration. Um, so this was very interesting to go back to the 2016 report and read that Kirk had done this. He, he talked to the manufacturer. Now, what Kirk also did was he put the ASAP behind the device, so on the in-feed end of the device, using the ASAP, as a rope tailor, and he said there it performed very well. Although obviously you have to allow for um, the deployment of the, the deployment of the EN three fifty five energy absorber, which is you know almost two meters. So not only that, but depending on your device and how it's feeding in. For example, if you have an NPD with the friction horn, your ASAP needs to be now anchored in front of the device to allow that that turn. That yeah, there's some rigging considerations turn. there. It works yeah. very well there, but there is some. Um, feasibility in terms of, of of rigging, okay, for it to work. Um, any other points off what Kevin just brought up, Damien? No, yeah, I, I agree with Kevin. I don't think this is device specific. I mean, what certainly caught my mind a few years ago is um, you know Kirk, who manufactured, I shouldn't say manufactured, engineered, designed the MPD, um, came up with these tests, and he certainly said in best case scenario you have a tailor. Um, if you don't, some high situational awareness is the least you can expect. Um, but what I never saw was the manufacturer take hold of that and um, run with it. It never seemed to be endorsed by the manufacturer in an official capacity, um, saying that you must have a tailor. Um, and that interested me in terms of the guy who's uh, designing it and then running these tests and finding, um, you know, obviously when humans defeat the device, it... it, it 
opens you up to, to critical problems. Um, the manufacturer never really latched onto it to, to endorse it. So, um, Where's the gap, basically? Yeah, and that's what I'm missing. And, you know, with the clutch coming out, um, that's also an interesting. The device obviously operates in a different way. Ergonomically, you hold it in a different way. I don't believe there's any hard testing similar to what Kirk has done on the MPD with it. Um, but what really kind of stirs this conversation is most people um, cannot disagree that tailing is the best case scenario. It's the gold standard. However, I don't believe there's a manufacturer out there that requires it when using a two-tension uh, you know, rope lower, using their devices on both lines. So where is that gap? Where are we losing it behind what we think is best practice, but not necessarily endorsed by the manufacturers themselves? Well, it's funny you should say that because I've got some counterpoints there for you about it being the gold standard based Perfect. on what you guys have just talked to me about. <laughs> uh, just hang on a second, Mark. Just real quick, the fourth scenario in the CMC video didn't get to that. Two clutches, single operator with a second person tailing. Oh, that's what we've been talking about, yeah. Yeah, so. Um, now, Richard Delaney, single operator, has a better feel for the rope. If we put a tailor in behind there, is that interfering with that operator's feel of that rope? I mean, it's, it's going to be device specific, I think, as well, depending on how that rope comes out. So thoughts on that? Are we solving a problem, creating a problem? Yeah, and you know, that's interesting because I kind of brought it up earlier where, in my opinion, my personal opinion, if you're tailing correctly, um, there should be very little slack between the tailor and the operator's hand. And uh, with that little slack, I think the operator loses that feel, essentially, of the rope kind of coming through his hand. And, uh, you know, you may start to lose similarity in terms of tension on each line, but I think that's a, it's, it's a very valid point. It may kind of impede it, but I don't know if that's a deal breaker for me personally. Kevin, any other thoughts on that? I don't, I'm not aware, I don't know if Richard Delaney included a tailor when he was testing you know, how well a single operator, two devices. Rich, give me a call. Two operators. <laughs> um, when, he, when he was coming up with those numbers, what I do know is that, and this is one of the things Richard presented on at the Sprat conference, is that he is recommending a rope tailor for dual main systems in the rope access industry. So he uh, basically had, and I might not have all of the details in this correct, but he, he talked uh, about how dual main systems are definitely... Um, a better in general terms system than a single main with a, a backup device. It gives you uh, a much better factor of safety because we've already loaded both ropes. We don't have to allow for up to a six kilo hit on a backup device or an energy absorber. Um, so it gives us a greater factor of safety. We pre-tension the ropes, all these other things. We know that um, twin tension, generally speaking, um, provides us with better systems in single tension, not necessarily in all cases, or it's not necessarily always the right tool. Um, so he was demonstrating how if you're descending in rescue with a patient with two descent devices, uh, and yes, clutches were, were many and everywhere at Sprat Conference, because it was hosted by CMC, he was actually demonstrating this with a couple of Siriuses, um, and he left uh, his ASAP on one of the ropes as a speed limiter. And the thought being that single operator running two devices, you could theoretically hold both devices open, let go of the ropes. And now he wasn't using the ASAP as a point of connection so much as is if we start going too fast, the ASAP will 
stop you. So it was kind of an interesting... It's reverse thought. tailing. Yeah, exactly. With, with just one versus two as presented by CMC Rescue School in their scenario three. And then he, he then uh, moved on to lowering a load from a fixed anchor and incorporating a tailor. And his thought was, we've got two ropes. We need two connections to, you know, to those ropes. We need two devices. Um, and if basically let's talk about we're in a lowering system, we need two different operators. The ASAP kind of operates itself. So we either have a descent control device and an ASAP or some other such backup device, or if one operator is on two DCDs, we need another operator. Um, and that's one of the things that he was presenting on because of this very issue, the human operator issue. And certainly with some devices, let's say somebody who really likes rigs instead of an ID. For Why are you instance, looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm into the serious now, man. I just uh, had a group Japan. I am sold um, on that device. You know, you open up two rigs, you bury the handles, and you, you kind of you forget about the feel in your hand on those control levers. And you start going really fast, and if your brake hand, um, for some reason, you loses control of the ropes, now there isn't even an anti-panic feature to hold you. So, again, it's definitely it's a hazard, and if we are going to run our, if we don't mitigate it, we risk some unusually long stopping distance, or potentially all the way to the ground, from an operator holding one or both devices open. So, the ASAP above two descent control devices when repelling uh, it's an interesting concept certainly new to me and I see it being a speed limiter in the sense of it, it certainly won't allow you to repel all that quickly however is it accomplishing the same goal that a tailor would in the sense if the line with the ASAP were to fail there's still that human defeating the descent control device on the other line the ASAP essentially has no play anymore so we're, it's coming back to the, I guess, the core problem, which introduced the concept of the tailor. How do we overcome that? How do we kind of stop defeating the device altogether? Ultimately, it might have to be two ASAPs. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of solutions, but then do we get carried away having two descent control devices and two ASAPs just to repel? It's funny. <laughs> Look at my next question right here. I'm gonna put on my gramp here and yeah. go. How safe is too safe? I mean, at what point? Maybe we should put two harnesses on. We'll put an ID and an ASAP on each harness in case the harness fails on the way down as well. I mean, where is the end of this road? Well, I mean, if you ask a rider, they'll probably push for two harnesses. But, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at what point do you have, have to trust situational awareness? At what point do you have to put a little bit of faith in the person operating the devices, um, that they're fully aware of what's happening and they are ready for failure. They're anticipating failure to try to minimize that human element on the device. Um, I mean, we can kind of build systems that truly take human error out of it by just putting safety upon safety upon safety. Um, but where do you draw the line? Where do you start to sacrifice and, and you know, mitigate risk? And where do you kind of decide, all right, well, enough's enough. We'll, we'll take our chance, you know? Where does operations become impacted and where yeah. does safety all of a sudden start to create other safety issues? Absolutely. Yep. Like you well, said, you put a couple of ASAPs in front of it and all of a sudden you cut the rope instead. I'd rather have it longer caught. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we've got, you know, a couple of people heading down to Petzl to, do, to take part in some more testing with Craig. And maybe this is one of the 
I don't know if there's room in his testing schedule to to look at something, but you can and you get a chance to talk with Petzl engineers about it. It's an it's definitely an interesting issue. Are ASAPs in front of the device on tension ropes? Is that an appropriate location for them? From our te- Kirk's testing in 2016, the margin for error is pretty small, and and the margin for error there seems to be it, just from my quick perusal of the report seems to be the rope, the host rope, um, which is we could be using any rope, right? Um, we can't always, you know, guarantee that, you know, oftentimes we get there and here's the rope we've, we've got. So to, to say that that is the system and we have a one kilonewton safety buffer um, before we start shredding the rope, that's a pretty small margin for error. Now, uh, obviously, uh, a blade comps drop test, again, is an extreme test. Um, however, that is the test we use. Those are the, the numbers we use so we have something consistent. And I had a thought, and it's gone. So the people that Blake Omsey drop test is very similar to the NFPA belay standard that's out there now. So if you're a newer rescuer and that's what you're familiar with, you went around in 1982 when Arnold Larson and a bunch of people decided to start throwing crap off cliffs, you can just look at the new NFPA standard. Um, last piece here, from a couple things. Damien brought it up there, training issue, to anticipate upcoming issues so are we failing our rescuers by not actually training them these i mean we're all all the industries famous for it at this point and we're all just as guilty we're we're running rescuers through fast and hard because fire departments are saying well that's a four-day course it's always been a four-day course but people are coming out with only tertiary knowledge of these and not expert user levels and the problem isn't the device. We have to defeat any device. The problem is we're not training people to anticipate and have enough experience to understand what they're even anticipating. Is that, is that the solution here? Is that, like you've just got to have better training to be situationally aware? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree in, in some aspects there. At times, I think we're, we're failing uh, the guys that we're training. I mean, certainly... You look at the majority of rescues that are performed across North America, typically they're fire departments or local search and rescue teams. Now, if you were to look at the number of hours they put into rope rescue training every year, I think they'd be fairly substantial. However, if you look at the hours that one particular person gets to be on the MPD or clutch or ID or spare or whatever it may be, lowering a rescue size load, I bet the time isn't significant enough. I don't think it's enough time for them to really get a feel um, for what it truly feels like to lower a load and perhaps some of the load is taken off because the rescuer has put his feet down on a ledge and it changes a little bit, the dynamics change, and the operators of the device don't truly get to know the device as well as they should and know what a failure looks like and how to anticipate one or what they should do. We don't practice enough um, with the line failing. How many rescuers do you know in your local fire department or search and rescue team have had the opportunity to lower a load and have the other line cut and then take the full load onto the line? I think the numbers will probably be fairly small. I think the three of us are in Los Angeles doing something very similar to this in about three weeks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and Damien brings up a hugely important point. And your point about training, Mark, is, yeah, training is a huge part of this and probably the largest component of, of mitigating, you know, any of these hazards that we, we regularly see in, in the, you know, the, the at-height environment is, is training. Um, but the negative feedback loop that we create when we rig these systems and we never fail them, not, certainly not 
catastrophically so people don't get that experience. And a catastrophic failure of a two-rope system is, you know, it is a relatively rare event. And this is the event that we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody messes up and we load one system more than the other or, or a whoops moment. And, you know, we train really hard to kind of eliminate whoops moments from our, our edge transitions and uh, in our operations. Um, but catastrophic failures, most people never see those. And this is what we're talking about. What happens when we have a catastrophic failure of one rope? So we have a negative feedback loop and that we have little to, you know, the majority of practitioners probably have no experience um, for a catastrophic failure of a rope. And some rescuers will have, have some, but few rescuers will have any significant amount of experience that can actually make some, some judgments on. Um, so this is a, a huge part of sort of the, the training paradigm we find ourselves in that a lot of people might say, why do we need rope tailors? We've never had an issue. Well, you won't have an issue until you have something catastrophically happen. So it's back to the old saying, safety fourth, because if it was fifth, someone get hurt. And if it's third, nothing's getting done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so finally, I guess looking at this, training's a bit, one of the, the biggest issue out of it. Train your people, fail your systems, have them understand it. I mean, I think when we were training for China one year, we were in here and we were climbing rope and somebody was lowering. And I remember the guy initially that was lowering saying, it actually, it took some getting used to with the one person and the way the load was moving to run it through the controlled descent device and just mm -hmm. having that experience. So training is huge. I think everybody then agrees that the gold standard is tailing. I mean, it's having that extra person. But now based on operational need, the amount of people that are on scene, whether you can see the load or not. So you have also a visual indication for your, um, um, you know, uh, wow, what, what am I looking for? Uh, reaction time, thank you. Um, you know, type of rope you're using, type of device you're using. Based on all of those things, you may end up varying from, call it the gold standard, and you know, whether I agree with it or not, let's just go with that for right now. <laughs> And you may have to stop at a level underneath that, down at bronze or something, in order to finish your mission in the time allotted with the equipment and people that you have allotted to it based on the training and experience that you have. Does that pretty much sum this up? Yeah, I think that's a really you know, good way of putting it, Mark. You know, ideally, we would have you know, properly trained people. We would use tailors. Um, I think... Training is still a, a big component. Number one, know how to operate your device correctly. Follow the manufacturer's instructions. Look up some of this testing uh, and some of these reports so that you understand what the some of these issues are. And use tailors when at all possible. And understand that it is a risk assessment. If you don't have a tailor or you don't have the you know the extra equipment or, or the rigging room, you elect not to use it. Understand that that increases your risk exposure. And Sometimes that is acceptable, and at some point that may become unacceptable. Whether or not that is, you know, not having a tailor creates an unacceptable risk, that's going to take more testing. Damien, <laughs> any final thoughts? I know you've got a class that's 22 minutes in right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you guys kind of summed it up really well there. I think, uh, you know, I. I'm not sold on it being quote unquote gold standard, but I do think that. Amen, the, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think tailing, it's hard to argue against it. It provides that extra measure of safety. It's kind of helping guide us against that catastrophic failure. 
Um, however, I think you need to do a risk assessment and based on what you have and what your needs are, um, you know, I don't think that people should be shy of not using a tailor um, so long as they know exactly what they're doing. And part of that, as Kevin says, is reading up on the testing, reading up on the reports. Don't just take one person's word for it. Um, there's a fair amount of information out there that you need to kind of read up on and make that judgment for yourself and for the team. All right, so the next thing we'll debate in L.A. is whether to use AHDs as cantilevers because that'll cause nothing but issues either. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jen. So let you get back to your day. Cheers. Thanks, Mark.